Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. I'm Sabrina Nanji, filling in for John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, Debate 2022 Review. We'll take you through the highs and lows of the first ever four-liter province-wide televised debate. Meantime, the leaders were out in full force today talking school repairs, four-day work weeks, and new union endorsements. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. Day 14 of the campaign, so let's get to it. Hello, Sabrina. What have you done with my John Michael? <laughs> you know, I actually don't know. I thought maybe he was, you know, just ready to call it quits after last night's debate. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure he hopped on a bus and he's going somewhere around the province of Ontario uh, checking out what's going on in the hustings. But meantime, while he's out doing that, uh, we're very happy to have you pinch hitting uh, from the Queen's Park Observer. And let's start with uh, the big picture from last night. Overall, what was your takeaway from the debate? You know, I think a lot of us uh, here in this room, a lot of listeners are, are probably, you know, political nerds. I, I say that as a term of endearment. Uh, and so I think for us, it was a very exciting, a big moment. You know, there were some fiery exchanges, but at the end of the day, we kind of got a lot of talking points from the leaders too. And I don't know if it was a huge turning point moment, especially for some of the opposition leaders in particular. And the NDP and Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, uh, who arguably the, the stakes were highest for. Yeah, I uh, remember, uh, I guess I should say at the top, I don't experience this obviously like anybody else. A leader's debate is a television event, and I did not see it on television. Uh, I was in the room. So my impression of things is obviously going to be different from everybody else's. But having said that, it seemed to me as if everybody could walk out of that studio last night saying, I accomplished pretty much what I wanted to accomplish. That was my sense, that there were four pretty strong performances. But let's go through them, and if you disagree, uh, obviously feel free to chime in. Doug Ford. Was everything perfect? No, it wasn't perfect. But if there was an issue, I'll get up there. I made the change. I apologize. But Playgrounds let's, let's, let's and just police. talk about that Playgrounds for a minute, and police. Mr. Del Duca. For two and a half years, literally 24-7, I was working on this pandemic. It's easy to sit back from the from the sidelines when you didn't have to make the tough decisions that I had to make and criticize he was obviously the big target of the night how did he do well, I think certainly the conservative war room is patting themselves on the back. I think Doug Ford did what he was supposed to do. Uh, you know, he, for the most part, kept his cool. He stayed on message, you know, talking infrastructure projects, uh, hammering on his opposition competitors, you know, sometimes not so accurately. Uh, of course, you know, some of the onus uh, is on the actual, his actual rivals to maybe, you know, fact check him on the fly. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, uh, maybe the binder uh, helped him a little bit. I know that the the debate uh, consortium had asked the leaders not to bring their notes with them. Uh, and I do think Ford tends to do well when he speaks off the cuff a bit more naturally. So in the beginning, he was a bit shaky. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, he did what the, the, his war room wanted him to do. 
I can tell you he was nervous at the very beginning. You could see it in his demeanor. There's no question about that. Uh, the binder is obviously there to be uh, helpful to him and as a bit of a security blanket, if you like. And just to clarify, yes, indeed, the consortium that organized the debate had rules in place saying no binders allowed. You can bring in um, paper and a pen and take notes and that kind of thing, but no binders allowed. From what I understand, the Ford campaign responded by saying, well, what if he does? What are you going to do? You're going to prevent him from coming in? And they said no, and therefore he did. He brought the binders with him, and it gave him the security he needed. And, uh, and from all accounts, he seemed to perform pretty well with it. On the binder, I would just say that I don't think the public at large really cares so much about the speaking note side of it. Uh, they're willing to forgive Ford, you know, if someone needs a cheat sheet. Uh, but certainly that got a lot of people riled up on social media. And of course, you know, we kind of heard it as a repeat dig from liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who I think referred to it as like a, a book of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Opposition leader Andrea Horvath, how does she do? You know, I have to say, um, maybe notes would have helped Andrea Horvath uh, a little bit. She was a bit uh, unnatural, you know, in the beginning, I thought, stammering almost uh, in her opening remarks. You know, it happens to everybody. But uh, I, I think that there were no major breakthrough moments. And that's also kind of what I'm hearing from people in her own camp. Uh, but that uh, of course, she tried to present herself as the you know government in waiting, the, the steady hand. I'm, I'm not sure if she did that quite enough. But again, I think the bar is kind of high for her because this is her fourth kick at the can. She should kind of be used to the debate stage by now. One of the things that she does, and I think it works quite effectively when she's having, for example, events in ridings around the province, is that she'll gather a group of people who are affected by the issue that she wants to discuss and she'll just talk to them and get them to tell their personal stories. And she'll react to that and then talk about the policy prescriptions she'd bring forward to fix that. She tried that last night on the debate stage. Whenever I think about what happened uh, during the pandemic, I think about long-term care and the absolute tragedies that took place there. I think about people like Kathy Parks, uh, who was traumatized uh, by the death of her father in a private a long-term care home, a for-profit long-term care home, who basically refused to give give him the care that he needed. Uh, my impression is it's harder to do that when you've got a clock running uh, five feet away from you telling you, come on, wrap it up. you got 30 seconds to finish this. What was your impression? Yeah, I agree. One thing, um, you know, of course it matters what the, these these leaders are saying. But one thing that I found was a little strange was that she kept smiling after everything she she was saying, like she would be talking about, you know, families that she met who were impacted uh, by some of the horrors we saw in long-term care. And then she would smile at the end of it. And I know, you know, that might be a little thing, but to the, the wider public, it, it really matters uh, in, you know, your impression of the leaders, of course. And so it's uh, maybe a little distracting, I think. Uh, and I haven't actually broken down the numbers yet or the, the timing of it, but I think she actually spoke the least. Uh, and of course, you know, she spent a lot of time attacking liberal leader Stephen Del Duca almost as much as she spent attacking Doug Ford, which of course, uh, you know, is going to benefit the Tories because the NDP and the liberals, as we've seen in public polls, they've been jockeying for second place. And so the anti-Ford supporters might, uh, you know, still be undecided of, of where they're going to lean, liberal or NDP. Well, again, now, I have to confess, I don't know if my impression is the correct impression because, uh, you know, I was in the room as opposed to watching it through television. But in the studio, it felt like Stephen Del Duca's attack on Doug Ford for having failed the province, quote unquote, to use his expression, uh, was the strongest moment of the debate.
Your record on public education, Mr. Ford, is an embarrassment, and you should be ashamed of yourself for what you have done to kids across this province, like mine and the hundreds of thousands of others that just want a premier, who understands that you have a moral obligation to get public health care right, and you, you, sir, have failed this province. Yeah, certainly that was, uh, you know, a very powerful exchange. Uh, I think Doug Ford, you know, he he didn't quite take the bait uh, on a lot of, you know, the, the opposition criticisms, but certainly uh, talking about education, which Del Duca has, has made, you know, a, a centerpiece of his platform uh, that, that, you know, clearly got under Ford's skin. And I'm not sure if it was the best rebuttal to say education minister, Stephen Lecce, who's had his own fair share of controversial headlines lately, uh, it was the right move. Uh, but but at the end of the day, you know, I think uh, Del Duca maintained his his cool for the most part. He got a little bit defensive, but not overtly angry. Uh, and, and arguably the stakes were ho- very high for him uh, reintroducing himself, rebranding himself in the Liberal Party after what happened in 2018 when they were decimated. So uh, again, you know, like we saw in the Northern debate, this might have turned into a little bit of Ford versus Del Duca. Now, this was an historic debate because for the first time ever, as we suggested off the top, there were four leaders on the stage as opposed to only three. Uh, The first leaders debate took place in 1971. It was Bill Davis for the Conservatives, Robert Nixon for the Liberals, Stephen Lewis for the NDP, and every debate since then has been a Tory, a Liberal, and a New Democrat leader. And for the first time ever last night in a province-wide televised debate, we had a fourth leader on the stage, Mike Schreiner, because he was elected to a seat in the legislature four years ago, and he asked a particularly penetrating question of Doug Ford at one point. Mr. Ford, have you talked to a nurse lately? Have you talked to a nurse about how disrespected they feel, how overworked and underpaid and underappreciated they are? how insulted they feel being called heroes and then essentially having their wages cut by having them frozen? Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, asking about the, uh, have you actually spoken to a nurse lately? Uh, You know, Schreiner did a very good job of getting under Ford's skin. I think that it kind of looked like Ford was turning red almost. Uh, And I think, you know, even Ford kind of admitted to Schreiner, uh, I can work with you. uh, At least you're more upfront compared. And, you know, maybe the NDP and the liberals have something to learn from him. But of course, you know, Schreiner certainly uh, rose to the occasion and and took advantage of this opportunity here. It'll be the first time most voters will have seen him. But Steve, you and I have been watching him at Queens Park for the last four years. We know he punches above his weight. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I think that uh, it's easy to do that, of course, you know, when you've got nothing to lose, essentially, he doesn't have a very good chance, virtually nil chance of of forming government. Uh, And so he might be in a better position to do that. But of course, he's trying to grow his caucus of one, hang on to his seat in Guelph. Uh, And so he might have actually picked up on, on that front. Now, in terms of deciding who did the best and who did the worst, this is, of course, a game of expectations. People may have expected more from Andrea Horvath because, as you point out, it's her fourth time on the debate stage. They may have expected a little more from Doug Ford because it's his second time. Conversely, with Stephen Del Duca and Mike Schreiner, rookies on the debate stage. So taking all of that into account, who helped themselves last night? Who didn't help themselves so much last night? 
Well, I think if you ask all the parties, they're all claiming their their person one. Um, but of course, yeah, we, we don't have skin in the game. And so it's a little easier for us to assess all of this. I think, uh, like I said, Ford did what he was supposed to do uh, for the most part, stayed stayed, you know, cool. He, uh, didn't really get so much into the crosstalk. Of course, you know, he wasn't exactly factual when he was laying out, um, what the liberals are promising, you know, they're not promising to bring back a, a gas tax cut, that type of thing. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, one liberal insider had told me that if the only thing the public takes away from this is that Del Duca has two daughters and, and they go to public school, that they're a-okay with that. Uh, so, so of course, though, the onus was on Del Duca here to, uh, for, for, to show voters who he is because he's still relatively unknown. We're midway through the campaign right now. Uh, I don't know if this was necessarily a turning point or if he had a major breakthrough, but, uh, you know, not having any major missteps, I think, is a victory uh, uh, for, for Del Duca, you know, some folks that I spoke with just anecdotally said that he was a bit stuffy. Um, and I would say the same for Andrea Horvath too, you know, uh, of course, uh, being under these lights in this situation, it's almost not a natural thing, uh, for, for these leaders. And you're right, you know, especially someone like Andrea Horvath who, uh, portrays herself as, uh, you know, very worker friendly, um, sticking up for the people that, as she says, for Ford's conservatives and, and the liberals have left behind. Uh, she does well when she kind of speaks to you at a personal level. I'm not sure if she quite accomplished that, but there's also something to be said for being the only woman on the, the stage too. Uh, I think, you know, that was significant to a lot of people as well. Uh, I, I really liked the question that you had asked about any regrets for, you know, they're in their political decision-making, but I think Horvath didn't do the best job. She kind of ducked the question. Yeah. That one disappointed me the most that night, actually. That, yeah. That, that, uh, we, like we, uh, props to Althea Raj who came up with that question. Uh, she was the one who suggested it. And the reality is Mike Schreiner was the only guy who actually gave a thoughtful, heartfelt answer. You know, I would say probably the one I uh, regret was that I did not run in Guelph uh, the first time I ran as leader. Even though it was a community I'd started a business in and had deep roots and, and a long-standing relationship with, I, choose an, I chose another riding to help out another one of our candidates. And that whole situation blew up in my face. That was a genuine confession by him. The other three, I thought, punted it. And, you know, as much as we had hoped to get some insight into their personalities by asking that question, I think at the end of the day, only one guy actually sort of revealed anything on it, which was a disappointment to me. Yeah, it was kind of cute. I think Ford, you know, took his cue from Shriner a little bit there. I don't think that answer was in the binder. Uh, but, you know, he he did say, I wish I ran earlier. Obviously, we know that was kind of a snap leadership uh, in 2018 for the for the conservatives there. He had also, you know, put his hat in the ring for mayor. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, what he was thinking with that. But of course, yeah, Schreiner had a great answer uh, there. Horvath completely ducked it. And I thought Del Duca, you know, appealing to voters in, in Vaughn Woodbridge, where we're hearing he, he doesn't even, uh, he might not have uh, as much of a shot as, uh, as Michael Tobolo, the current representative, he needs the seat back. And I, I thought that it, it meant something and it was significant to acknowledge, you know, the liberals who were walloped in 2018, that they might not have listened to voters and that he's willing to do it. A bit of a mea culpa there. But uh, yeah, I think Mike Schreiner hit that one out of the park.
Yeah, I'll give you that on Stephen Del Duca. Now that I think about it, I think you've convinced me that his answer in hindsight was better than I thought it was at the moment. But yes, he did give a, uh, he did give a better answer than I gave him credit for about the lessons of 2018. Well, one of the things I find interesting about these debates is the timing. And Sabrina, I'm sure that if we were having this leader's election debate a year ago, the place that COVID would have been on the agenda of that debate would have been entirely different from what it was last night. It felt to me like all four leaders were, were actually trying not to talk about COVID in some respects because they know that the public at this stage uh, wants to move on. A year ago, we'd have been neck deep in discussions about COVID and government policy. It seemed to me that they didn't dwell on it very much last night. What was your impression? Yeah, well, uh, I actually thought we did talk about it quite a bit uh, compared to what we've seen so far in the campaign. Uh, we haven't really been talking much about COVID. I think there's a lot of factors uh, there. Of course, you know, there's not much restrictions in place. Uh, of course, you know, we're seeing now hospitalizations going up slightly. Uh, of course, there's a lot of factors there, but the weather is getting better. I think, you know, not to downplay what we've been through in the last two years, but a lot of people are are feeling positive. And just anecdotally, I think a lot of people want to forget about this. And so we haven't really heard much from any of the political parties about the pandemic situation. Uh, and we saw the opposition uh, party leaders in particular try to bring up Ford's record. And uh, you're right, you know, a year ago, this this election, we were thinking it would be a referendum on, on Ford's handling of this. But what I'm hearing anecdotally from people is that Ford did his best. Uh, he did the best that he could, and they're willing to forgive him. I think it was important, of course, for Ford to kind of acknowledge that as well. Uh, you know, Stephen Del Duca hammering him on, on reopening earlier than experts had suggested in, in 2021. Ford said, he did he he did the best he could he acknowledged when he made mistakes i don't know if you know the public certainly not his his rivals think that that's good enough but i think it was important for ford to at least address that uh, and try to be candid and and open about it well i guess the last thing i'd say about this leaders debate is that uh, the numbers have come in and apparently 2 million people watched some of that leaders debate on the various television channels that carried it last night so um well, I can tell you, that's a good number. That is a very high number, and I'm quite thrilled that, uh, to hear that because it suggests a level of engagement out there that perhaps um, we didn't think was uh, was happening. So I'm I'm glad with that. Yeah, the, the Leafs are out. I think a lot more people are paying attention <laughs> to, to politics now. Well, maybe that may have had something to do with the good number, the fact that we were not on opposite a Leaf game. Good point. All right, let's check and see what happened today on the hustings. We'll get an update on today's events. Uh, Andrea Horvath, the NDP leader, was pitching money for fixing schools. Uh, tell us, what are some of the bullet points of that offer? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to make sure I have my numbers in front of me. Essentially, the backlog is almost at $17 billion to, to fix our aging and antiquated schools. Uh, the NDP is promising now to clear the, the repair backlog within 10 years, and they're going to put up another $4.8 billion over the next three years to do it. Uh, 467 million over three years to hire more maintenance staff like custodians to help deal with this. And then, uh, another 13 million to help with, uh, you know, uh, a province-wide standard for, for cleaning and school repairs. Uh, you know, both the previous governments, uh, the, the conservatives more recently and the, and the liberals kind of have some of this to wear, you know, under, under the liberals who were in power for 15 years, the, 
backlog grew to 15.8 billion. And now the conservatives, uh, under them, it has risen to 16.8 billion. I, I think, uh, you know, education uh, is obviously top of mind for a lot of people right now, uh, especially coming out of the pandemic when our students have seen such uh, difficult times over the last two years. Uh, the, the liberals, you know, I guess their counter promise here is that they would cancel the highway proposed Highway 413 and use that money to deal with the repair backlog. Uh, I've heard some criticisms of that just because, you know, the, the backlog kind of needs to be dealt with, with or without uh, this this highway there. Uh, but I think, yeah, the NDP is definitely on an education swing today. They're also highlighting their promises from to help students with mental health uh, concerns, which we've also seen grow over the last two years during the pandemic. So while Andrea Horvath was in Scarborough making that announcement this morning, Stephen Del Duca went right into the heart of the lion's den. He was in Etobicoke North. That is the riding, of course, of Doug Ford in the previous legislature. And Stephen Del Duca announced that the Liberals wanted to work with businesses and labor groups and implement a kind of pilot project to test run a four-day work week. And he also announced that he would restore, if he is the next government of Ontario, the basic income pilot that the previous Liberal government brought in and that it was one of the first things, actually, that Doug Ford's Conservative government cancelled. And just as a little bit of background here, Sabrina, why don't you remind us the history of the Basic Income Pilot Project and what it intended to do? Yeah, so uh, this is something that the NDP has also promised, kind of similar uh, pledges there. But essentially, under the former Liberal government, they were launching a pilot project uh, that was set to run for three years. And essentially, it would give payments uh, to about 4,000 low-income people in certain communities, uh, including Hamilton, Thunder Bay, Brantford, Lindsay, uh, and uh, you know, uh, participants would receive around seventeen thousand dollars a year, and they would uh, they would be clawed back at fifty percent of any earned income they had. And so, when the liberal, uh, excuse me, the conservatives came to power, they canceled that, uh, which I think you know really disappointed a, a lot of people, especially advocates and even um, so-called red Tories. You know, uh, I think uh, guaranteed basic income is something that Ronald Reagan had. Uh, touted, you know, back in the day south of the border. And, uh, you know, the conservatives are fond of saying that the best help uh, that you can get someone um uh, who, who's maybe in need of social assistance is, is to help them get a job. And actually, early stats that we had but uh, from the previous government showed that about two-thirds of those who uh, were on the basic income, part of that pilot program, that they had enrolled in a job. And so I think the big disappointment for a lot of advocates of this program is that any of that data that would have been started with that pilot project kind of, you know, went uh, went down the drain. And, and of course, you know, there are conservative uh, appeals to something like this. Uh, and I think it'll be a, a vote grabber for sure from the opposing parties. Well, I think of Hugh Siegel in particular, who was once chief of staff to Bill Davis and Brian Mulroney and a former senator, and who's probably worked for going on four or five decades for a basic income program. Uh, I know he was... Um, well, I don't think it's too strong to say he was devastated that the party that he's belonged to since he was a teenager uh, decided to cancel this program in favor of nothing in its stead. Speaking of the Conservatives, Doug Ford was in North York in the uh, northern part of Toronto today, again with his typical backdrop of uh, guys in hard hats. Uh, and he got uh, some very good news from a fourth private sector union, which endorsed him. Why don't you tell us about that? 
Yeah, the uh, International Union of Painters and Allied Trades are, are now backing forward. This is his fourth union endorsement that he's received, uh, kind of maybe a, a rare feat for the conservatives. We don't typically think of them as organized labor friendly. Uh, but of course, you know, that's how the PCs are, are positioning themselves. We heard it often from Ford at the debate, you know, um, him kind of telling Andrea Horvath, typically the, the union friendly party, you guys are out of touch. Uh, we're, we, you know, we're the ones who are siding with with unions. Uh, and I, I think, you know, there are a lot of labor friendly policies on the table from all parties right now, uh, a higher minimum wage. Uh, the PCs like to say they're they're working for workers. They've got, you know, some digital uh, uh, more rights for digital app based workers, that type of thing. Uh, but it's certainly a, a shift for Ford. I thought it was kind of a, a cute photo op, you know, to paint. Uh, the, the party slogan, get it done when he's visiting the painters union as well, <laughs> makes for a, a great photo op, I think. Well, we also have to make a distinction between uh, the public sector unions, which can't stand the premier, and the private sector unions like Leuna, like the pipe fitters, like the painters and the allied trades, uh, who, uh, who have done very well under the current government because there's lots of highway building, etc. going on. And as a result, uh, they feel more indebted to the current leader of the PC party uh, than they might have in previous years. Let's put it that way. And let's finish up with the Greens here. Uh, Mike Schreiner touting uh, his housing plan and, intriguingly enough, the idea of lowering the voting age to 16. What's that about? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, they're painting that as something, you know, that would increase Democratic participation, of course. I think a lot of younger folks tend to support the Greens. Uh, you know, obviously, that's just maybe a general statement. Uh, he also wants to make Election Day a statutory holiday, which I think a lot of people <laughs> would like. But, you know, we do kind of have uh, time off. You, you are supposed to get time off from your job to go to go and vote on Election Day as well. Uh, and and so that's a that's a bold promise from Schreiner. You know, he he didn't quite propose to change the, the current way we vote, you know, first past the post system. But his platform did kind of address that, that they, you know, support propor proportional representation. Uh, and he's also promising um, to crack down on housing speculation, uh, bringing in a tax on, on uh, home purchases for buyers that already own two homes or more. Uh, they're promising to bring in inclusionary zoning, which I think, you know, the conservatives in particular have, have backed off a little bit. Uh, and I guess, you know, even by their own admission, had a bit of a lukewarm housing plan in their latest legislation before the, the House rose. But of course, it's now on the books as, as law. Uh, so a, a lot of bold promises from Schreiner, too. We saw him in University Rosedale, where Diane Sachs, the former environmental watchdog, is running, you know, of course, it would still be a long shot for her. Uh, University Roselle has typically been a liberal bastion, of course, uh, represented by the NDP for now. But I think that they clearly think the Greens that they have a shot there. We we even heard Schreiner give it, give that writing and also Perry Sound Muskoka, where there is no liberal candidate. He gave both of them a special shout out during the debate. So obviously it's clear uh, where the Greens are gunning for. Well, I asked Mike Schreiner, who came into TVO actually for an interview just before we started taping this podcast, I asked him, you know, you got 20% of the vote in Perry Sound Muskoka last time. You really think you can win this riding? And his answer was uh, quite a defensible answer. He said, look, it, that's the kind of vote per percentage I used to get until I won. And that's the percentage they got last time. And 
maybe will again until they win. And he really believes they can make a breakthrough here. We'll see. Hey, one last thing. You're a lot closer to age 16 than I am. So I should ask you, what do you think about the idea of giving 16 year olds the right to vote? Look, I know that a lot of the argument is, you know, if you don't pay taxes, you don't get to vote. But um, I, I think that it's I like to think of, you know, the electorate more as citizens rather than taxpayers. And of course, you know, you can do a lot when you're 16. You can drive, you can get a license. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, it's it's a very compelling it's a very compelling promise uh, that will probably spur a lot of people. But of course, 16 year olds can't vote this time around. So I'm not sure if that's going to be uh, what moves voters uh, towards the Greens. Maybe the 16-year-olds will tell their parents to go vote for the Greens so that they can vote next time around. Who knows? Anyways, uh, anything else you want to raise, Sabrina, before we sign this thing off? I mean, I think uh, I, I'm ready to, to hit the road. I'm, uh, you know, uh, maybe join John Michael McGrath on the trail. I uh, would also say, you know, we had a big scoop again in, in Queens Park Observer. If I can just plug that uh, this week, you know, I'm hearing more folks have joined this 901 club. Uh, they're not very happy with Andrea Horvath, especially after the, the debate night. Uh, there were some jokes about maybe making T-shirts, you know, getting ready to, uh, you know, put the pressure on her to step aside if she she doesn't, uh, you know, form government. The moment polls close at 9.01 p.m. on June 2nd. So I think the knives are out. And as we get closer to Election Day, we're going to see a lot more um, dirt coming out from each of the parties, too. So uh, look out for some brown envelopes. I can tell every time you ask Ms. Horvath about that in a news conference, she just loves it when you bring that story <laughs> up. Maybe not. Maybe not, <laughs> not so much. Not so much. Yeah. All right, Sabrina, thanks for pinch hitting for John Michael today. And that is the On Poly podcast for day 14. A reminder, we're here every weekday during this 43rd general election campaign, right through to election day, June the 2nd. Sabrina, good to be with you. We'll see you out there on the hustings. Yeah, have fun out there.